All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are digging deeper, and this week we are finally there. We finally get to Revelation chapter 6, the opening of the seals, and as we will look at through the month of June, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I'm not talking about Notre Dame football. I'm not talking about Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. I'm talking about the actual four horsemen that John sees in Revelation chapter 6. And before we get into the verses, which as I said, we will take most of the month of June to have the four horsemen come out each one every week. I want to talk about this section of Revelation first, because we've gotten through the first three sections of Revelation. You have chapter one as the prologue. You have chapter two and three as the messages to the seven churches. Then four and five constitute the look into heaven at the time of all this. And then chapter six through 16 are the hardcore part of Revelation. This is what most everybody talks about when they talk about Revelation and all the scary stuff in it. These are the times of the seals, the trumpets, and the censers that cover the time from the ascension of Christ into heaven, which we saw in chapters 4 and 5, all the way to the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to in chapter 17, especially. So Dr. Brighton, as he's talking about this section of Revelation, says the events displayed in the three visions, the seals, the trumpets, and the censers, are not given for the purpose of predicting particular events in human history. Rather, they are presented so as to portray conditions, circumstances, situations, environments, and context in which people find themselves during the time period covered. The end result of the prophetic message, then, is not to give a predictable view of history, but rather to give a predictable view of the human condition in suffering and defeat because of human evil and rebellion against God. The purpose is to move all people to repentance and faith before the end. So Brighton takes a moment to talk about this is not a continuous historical. This is not a futurist idea in these things. This is simply how humans are, not only in the time of suffering, but in general. Because if you are not suffering, quite often you are trying to make someone else suffer. That's just sinful human nature. We don't want anybody to have it as good as we do. All right, as we move into our other feature commentary, as in the show notes, we have the Reformation Heritage Bible Commentary. And on this section, they say, but these tribulations are not the events upon which John would have us focus our attention. John would rather have us focus on the interludes of the first two cycles. Between the sixth and seventh seals, and likewise between the sixth and seventh trumpets, John sees a segment of visions that are not properly part of the sequence of seven items. These visions thus stand out as interludes and therefore receive the emphasis. There we see how the Lamb brings to fulfillment God's plan of salvation. So as we see from here, it's not that John is wanting us to see, okay, you got to go through all these different things. No, we have in between the sixth and seventh seal, you have the sealing of the 144,000 and the great multitude standing before the throne of God in heaven. So you've got 
Uh, those two things going on there. You also have another interlude in between the sixth and seventh trumpet where you have the two witnesses. So you have these things that John says, these are the things to look at. These are in here because they are the important thing. So we must always keep that in mind as we are going through this text. Dr. Lewis Brighton begins again, the purpose of each vision, going back to the three different visions, is to work repentance and give the encouragement of faith and hope. The hearer is meant to receive each vision in such a way that as he fearfully heeds its sevenfold message, he is moved to repentance and faithful hope in the reigning Christ. If one takes lightly the first warning of the first sevenfold vision, he will be hit harder by the second warning of the second vision and thus be given another opportunity to repent. Finally, there is the dire third warning in which the reader is impacted even harder. Thus, the three sevenfold visions are three warnings by which God endeavors to bring home to his people on earth the seriousness of what he desires his church to hear and heed. God's people are to believe in the reigning Christ and to hope in his promise to soon come. Indeed, the ultimate purpose of Revelation is to inspire the church to pray with John in response to the Lord's promise in 2220, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come now, Lord Jesus. This follows the biblical precedent of threefold and sevenfold warnings, like in Leviticus 26. So as we get into chapter 6 itself, the first four seals are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And Dr. Brighton says, whatever the four horsemen symbolize and represent, it is quite clear they introduce woes and tribulations of various kinds. The symbolism of the horsemen indicates that the tribulations are of the sort that humans frequently experience in this fallen world. They are common and natural, not of the supernatural. For in apocalyptic literature, whenever an author portrays events or personages common to human experience and senses, he would make use of symbols taken from human earthly life. But when he wanted to portray supernatural events or personages which were beyond human experience and intelligence, he would create symbols which do not exist in an empirical human knowledge. And we'll see this again. But you see four horsemen coming through in the first four seals. We understand horsemen. We understand riding horses. So now we also on the other side have Ecumenius from the 6th century who has an interesting take on the scroll and the seals that hold the scroll together. He does not see the seals as moments of wrath, but as signs of mercy. We will look at his words as he writes about each of the seals, but we look at his introduction to the vision. The closing and sealing of the scroll signifies the fearful alienation of those inscribed in it and the closing of their mouths from making any plea for justice before God. Therefore, the gradual opening of the seals reveals the gradual recovery of our free and open relationship with God, which the only begotten acquired for us when by his own righteousness he set aright our offenses. So he sees this as things that Jesus did to take us from being sealed up and away from God to being open and having a great relationship with God. So we'll see how he does this in each of the seven seals. Leon Morris in the Tyndale Commentary writes about chapter 6, The first four seals form a unity. They show us the self-defeating character of sin. When the spirit of self-aggrandizement and conquest is abroad, all God needs to do is to let events take their course, and sinners will inevitably be punished. In the wake of conquest come from 
for war and famine and pestilence. This is not the whole story, and other aspects are brought out later, as in the first four trumpets, which show that God is not inactive. He sends his judgments on sinful people. But this is the aspect with which God, John is concerned here. After the first four seals comes a group of two dealing with things in heaven rather than on earth. The final seal stands apart from all the rest. So as Morris looks at the vision of the seals, he sees three different sections. The first four, then five and six, and then seven after the interlude. So enough talk about the overall view of it. Let's get into the first seal. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So far our text for this week. Finally, after almost nine minutes. But that is the point. We need to get the context first. So now as we get into chapter 6, there is quite a bit of controversy over who is, especially this first horseman. Because once you get the first horseman lined up, then everything else falls into line. But the difference between the interpretations here make everything else completely crazy. So like Ecumenius, who sees the seals as signs of mercy, the earliest commentators, Irenaeus and Victorinus, link the first horseman with Christ, while modern commentators link him with military domination, like R.H. Charles, or the angel of the Lord, like J.M. Ford, or the Antichrist, as Martin Franzman. In all interpretations outside of Ecumenius, the seals are seen as moments of wrath. So even Irenaeus and Victorinus, as they talk about the first horseman being our Lord Jesus Christ, it is still a moment of wrath. Praetorists, those especially of the Catholic Church, and many historicists identify the first horseman as Titus, the Roman general, soon to be emperor, that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, as we talk about this, there are vital reasons why to not link the first horseman with Christ. I'll give you three right here. First of all, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are presented as equals. In fact, the fourth horseman is seen as the dominant one of the four since death and the grave follow after him. The picture implied by the whole chapter is not that they ride behind each other, but all four ride side by side, carrying out their assigned tasks. Second one, a question for you. How can bloodshed, famine, and death following Jesus' train. That is completely against the gospel. And then number three, Jesus is never pictured with a battle bow. Jesus is typically seen having a sword. The sword signifies the ability to execute judgment. The battle bow signifies earthly warfare and the destruction of your enemy, which is not in align with Jesus and his teachings. So let's look at this horseman. Uh, Dr. Brighton brings out the first horse is white. Its rider has a battle bow and wears a crown. He exists solely to conquer and be victorious in his effort. The only mounted archers in the ancient world were the Parthians, who were so fierce that Rome could never completely subject them. The Parthian military leaders also were said to ride white horses into battle. 
The white color of the horse indicates that the horseman believes that it is his divine right to so conquer and be victorious. White is the color of God's majesty and wisdom, holiness and righteousness, and those who act on God's behalf can wear white. White is also the color for victory, for Christians who are victorious over sin and death can wear white. And we'll see him bring this out in many, many passages here, like Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning white, or for burning fire. Or Matthew 17, 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white like light. Or Revelation 1.14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Or speaking of the resurrection in Matthew 28, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Revelation 19.14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, being Jesus, on white horses. Or we saw in Revelation 3.5, and the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And again, we see, as we will, at the end of the month, in the fifth seal, the saints under the altar being clothed in white, or the great multitude of Revelation chapter 7 also being clothed in white as signs of their victory. So now we look into verse 2. The white horse, the rider with the bow, the crown on his head, he came out conquering and to conquer. Ecumenius says, The first good work of Christ our Savior toward our race, which loosed the first seal of the scroll, is the physical birth of our Lord. For his birth initiated our restoration from that exile that was occasioned by Adam's sin, and it began the recovery of that closeness of God with us, which we had lost, and the change of our fearful alienation into a confident freedom. So as he gets to the first seal, he goes through the entire idea of what he thinks the seven seals are, is that it is the good works of Christ that bring us from being mournful sinners to celebrating saints. Prismasius says, This white horse can be understood as the church of truth, represented in the persons of the apostles and preachers, which was made whiter than snow by grace. The rider upon the horse is Christ. Therefore it is said to him through the prophet, For you mounted your horses, and your army is salvation. Habakkuk 3.8 For the same reason he is said to hold an arrow. An arrow is aptly compared with the preaching of the word of God. For when the hearts of people are pierced, they are able to bear the fruit of faith. And so we read, your sharp arrows are very powerful. People fall before you, Psalm 45, 5. The crown indicates the reward rightly given to preachers. Caesarius of Arles says, the white horse is the church and its rider is Christ. The horse of the Lord with the bow made ready for war was promised beforehand by Zechariah in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. The Lord God will visit his flock, the house of Israel, and he will arrange him as a formidable horse in war. And from him he looked, and from him he arranged the battle order. And from him came the bow in anger, and from him will come out every oppressor. All right, so here are three different times of the third through about sixth century where we have the white horse, the first horseman be, being Christ. 
whether it is Christ as our Savior working thing, or Christ the one who is leading the church militant in this world, as Primazius and Caesarius have. Now, Andrew of Caesarea, writing about the same time as Ecumenius, takes a more historical view. We understand the loosing of the first seal to signify the generation of the apostles. For as though it were a bow, they stretched forth the gospel message against the demons and led to Christ those wounded by the arrows of salvation. And because they conquered the leader of deceit through the truth, they received a crown, and in hope they await a second victory, namely the confession of the name of the master unto a violent death. Therefore it is written, he went out conquering and to conquer. For the first victory is the conversion of the nations. The second is the willing departure from the body in persecution for the sake of that conversion. So Andrew has us as seeing it as the generation of the apostles, that first generation of the church. So he has a little bit more of a historical view as to what all these things mean. Dr. Brighton, finishing up our comments today, giving us exactly what we need to know. And this is probably one of my biggest flaws. I like to give a lot of the different interpretations. And you will see this throughout these visions. But I always want to finish off with what we truly believe the scriptures say. Dr. Brighton says, The rider of the white horse symbolizes and represents every form of tyranny which is won and acquired by power and force, usually warfare or forms of it, and which then by a dictator dictatorial rule exploits, enslaves, dominates, and terrorizes. The picture presented by this writer on the white horse is one of tyranny that will dominate and be the rule, not the exception, throughout the time period from the ascension up to the end of history. It gives a terrifying depiction of how human beings treat each other, people's inhumanity to other people through fear and exploitation. And again, going back to one of the other places that we talked about the white horse and being white because of it being a divine right or being seen as a divine right. We also have Romans 13 in here where Paul talks about being subject to the governing authorities as no authority is there except for what has been ordained by God. But there are sinners involved in said governments. There are tyrants. There are despots. There are dictators that take up the holy position of the government in this world. And this is what the white horse symbolizes, is that it looks at people's inhumanity to other people. That man cannot stand to have somebody else have at least as much as they do, and especially not having more. We want to always be the top dog, and that is our human nature. That is what we suffer with. That is what the white horse is all about. The first horseman of the apocalypse. Our own tyranny against our fellow man. And it goes downhill from there, as we will see in the coming weeks. But for right now, this is where I'm going to draw a stop. We'll look at the second horseman of the apocalypse next week in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6. But until then, this is Pastor Dugman. Thanking you for being here, digging deeper with me into Revelation. And I pray that it strengthens you to wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.